so awesome to be here. What a great place this is. I think you should all come to Oxford Falls. <laughs> So we've got some people over there we can send over here. They're not so crash hot. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. They're all awesome, but it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be here. You are very blessed. Trust me. With Hart, Nat, and some of the greatest people in our church, you are very, very blessed. Never forget it. It's fantastic. Does anybody know the origin of the name Silverwater? The answer is none of you do. They don't know the origin of the name Silverwater. But there's a theory go with me on this one there's a theory that it has to do with the water being silver amazing the water may be silver but the people are gold you people are gold I love it it's fantastic uh, you can all be seated they always give me difficult stuff to talk about <laughs> I don't know why that is well I do know why that is they figure he's a lawyer. Everyone hates him anyway. It's all good. <laughs> so they always give me a difficult topic. They figure if people hate him, well, let's move on. It's all good. Hey, I'm going to share something difficult with you, but I hear that people at Silverwater are up for it. Yeah. Are you up for it? Yeah. You're up for it. I know you are. You're a tough congregation. I'm going to start by giving you a brief history of vision builders. Will that help you? Yeah. I'll give you a brief history of vision builders. It was funny because I was with Chris, he's been looking after me, he's a great guy, We're out the back there, and he said, how long have you been working for the church? <laughs> I said, Chris, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not working for the church, I'm, I'm on the board, I head up the vision builders. He said, but surely that's a paid role. <laughs> Felt like saying, speak to Phil for me, <laughs> that'd be good. But no, it's not a paid role. I don't take a cent at any time ever from the church, never have, never will, sorry. I am actually a lawyer, that's what I do, sometimes successfully, then there's the rest of the week. <coughs> Short history of vision builders for you. You know, this church is a groundbreaking church. You might have noticed that already. It's a groundbreaking church. We tend to do things first, and we tend to break ground for people, and that's a tough role to be in. And one of the things we broke ground on was this whole idea of raising money outside of our tithes, which come into the house, for the purpose of expanding the kingdom. And the first time we did it, it was a thing called the Capital Stewardship Program. Was anybody around for the Capital Stewardship Program? None of you. Thank the Lord. It was quite tough. I was about to say evil. It wasn't evil, but it was really tough. And some great people put their heart on the line, put their resources on the line, and were attacked, fiercely attacked. And a lot of them didn't survive. It's like that Star Wars movie. You know when she says... A lot of lives were lost to deliver these plans. Well, the capital stewardship campaign, I'm sorry, a lot of lives were lost. People struggled. And bear in mind, this happened when the church was maybe five or six years old. And a lot of the people in the church were less than five or six years born again. So we weren't the pillars of strength that we are today. We were kind of new to this thing and vulnerable. And it was groundbreaking stuff, but it did break ground. And what we're doing now is we are standing on the shoulders of giants who broke that ground. It was fantastic that they carved the way and they ended up being able to get a building out there at Oxford Falls and now a building somewhere out west here, I don't know, somewhere around the place. An awesome building. It's fantastic. And buildings everywhere and churches all around the world, C3 churches, are building things and getting buildings and getting resources for the kingdom of God because of the ground that was broken. The second thing after the Capital Stewardship campaign was a thing called Rise and Build. 
You might remember Rise and Build. Even the relatively young ones will remember Rise and Build. Okay, Rise and Build came from Nehemiah 2 verse 8. Nehemiah got the authority to go back to the city of Jerusalem, which had all of its walls and all of its gates broken down, and he got to rebuild the walls of the city. Fantastic. But you know what? When they went there, he did not do anything with the temple. He rebuilt the walls and the gates. And because it wasn't to do with the temple, they didn't use tithes. Because tithes go into the house. So the people engaged in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the gates in those walls used their own resources above and beyond the first fruits that they brought. And that's very important. Because at Rise and Build, what we were doing is saying to people, look, you've been wonderful and faithful with the part that belongs to God, that 10% that belongs to God. We want you to see what you can do as a church with the resources that are beyond that 10%. Can we do something to build the church, to reach the lost, to reach people beyond ourselves? And so we started up Rise and Build and that was what it was all about. But it was limited at that stage to capital works. So all we were doing was buildings. That was it because uh, that was all we could get a tax-deductible status for, because we were building colleges, educational facilities, and the government said, well, that's educational, so you get a tax deduction. So that's what Rise and Build was about. After a period of time, we thought, you know what? We need to raise funds for a lot more than buildings and colleges, because that's great to equip the next generation of ministers, and we did that, and we sent them all over the world, and a lot of the churches around the world are being run by people who were trained in those colleges, a lot of the musicians, a lot of the preachers, a lot of the teachers, a lot of the staff, a lot of the administrators, all those things that go on all over the world in almost 500 churches, we're getting close to 500 churches, came because of people who put their money on the line and said, we're going to give to Rise and Build. We're going to build the facilities by which we can achieve that. And we said, well, hang on, there's more than that we need to do. We need to reach out the hand of Christ to people who are less well-off than us in Beyond Initiatives, and we need to broadcast the gospel all around the world. So we set up a thing called Vision Builders. Vision Builders has three elements to it, sort of four elements, but I'll tell you the three elements first. The first one is buildings. We are still building buildings, and we are still... Uh, maintaining buildings and building college facilities so we can train the next generation of people to reach the world. Amen? It's a good thing. Lots of people being trained. Probably some people in this church have been to college. Who's been to college? Anyone? I went to full-time Bible college in 1984, back when dinosaurs ruled the world. It was great. And then I got married at the end of 1984 and went back to law school. So obviously the college had a great impact on me. Uh, it was fantastic. Okay, so we're still building buildings, we're still doing that stuff, but we are also using what we call our Beyond Initiatives, C3 Cares, reaching the hand of Christ to people who are less well-off, lifting them out of their circumstances and into a relationship with Christ. Because the whole idea of rebuilding the gates to the city was so people could get to the city of God. And everything we do is focused on getting people into the city of God. We love that they're helped. We love that they're fed. We love that they're clothed. We love that they're touched. That's great. But what we most love is that they encounter Christ in a real and a meaningful way and they get the opportunity to say, you know what, Jesus, I want to know you. That's what we aim for. And the third thing we do is in transmitting the gospel all over the world. In uh, television, in the broadcasting of Presence Conference, we had, I think it was 40,000 people watching Presence on live online, you think it was good live, they're all over the world having presence parties, sitting around a 
computer screen watching all sorts of exciting things happen because of vision builders, because of the ability to transmit the gospel. And of course, Phil on TV, My Best Life, we're estimating at the moment that in India, there are 800 people a week receiving Jesus by watching television. That is fantastic. The gospel's going everywhere because we have people, you and me, who are vision builders. So that's what vision builders is. The other element of vision builders is, you may not know this, but there's a non-tax deductible element. So if you don't need or want a tax deduction for vision builders, either because you don't earn much, like me at the moment, or because, you know, you just don't need it, or because you've got a really clever accountant who sets up some trust thing, so you never pay tax anyway, God bless you. (laughs) If you don't need the tax deduction, you can give to a non-tax deductible vision builders fund, and that really helps us, because that enables us to use those resources in a far more flexible way, because some of the things through vision builders we can't use tax deductible money for, like church planting, Believe it or not, the government does not give us a tax deduction to plant a church. So we have to use non-tax deductible money when we plant a church, and planting a church costs a lot. Things like some of our social justice initiatives. When we reach out the hand of Christ to somebody who maybe has a child who needs a special car to transport them, or maybe has a special need of some kind, they're not a tax deductible beneficiary. And if they're not tax deductible, we can't use the money that is tax deductible. And we are religious, believe me, about using the money for the things that it's given for. But the non-tax deductible funds can be used for things like that. So if you're in that position, you can give in a much more flexible way. And that's the history of vision builders. In um, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, Jesus, it says of Jesus, seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Let me tell you something, compassion without resources is legless, it does nothing, it's great to feel compassion, but if there's nothing behind it, nothing will ever be achieved. You know, Margaret Thatcher, whether you like her or not, said a really, really good thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan. She said the Good Samaritan didn't just have good intentions, he had money. If he didn't have money... He wouldn't be in the Bible, because not only did he pick up the person from beside the road, take them to a hotel, pay their bills, pay their medical bills, he said, hey, whatever else it costs, you tell me when I come back and I'll give it to you. And the person who was putting up the person trusted the Good Samaritan. Why? Because he was good. He could trust him. Without resources, compassion is worth, sadly, absolutely nothing. I love how Rhonda was speaking about that rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16 to 26, they've got this, they'll put up on the screen for me, I think. This is the same passage about the rich young ruler, except it's out of Matthew. And it's a great story because he's a rich young ruler. He's got money, he's got youth, he's got power. What's he looking for? Eternal life. He comes to Jesus and says, okay, I've got money, I've got youth, I've got power. What have I got to do to get eternal life? It says, now behold, one came to send good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but the one that is God. But if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. It's a pretty good start. He said to him, which ones? <laughs> I love which ones. <laughs> which ones? Because <laughs> there's some of them I'm going to struggle on. <laughs> you don't say which ones. If you're keeping them all, you say, I'm all good, Jesus. When you say which ones, because you're hoping he won't say the ones you're not keeping. <laughs> That's why he says which ones. But he says which ones. Jesus is gracious. You don't think Jesus didn't know the ones he wasn't keeping? He could have gone straight to the ones he wasn't keeping. And the guy would have said, oh, yeah, right, yeah, tough gig, I'm out of here, or whatever. So Jesus chose the ones he was keeping, because Jesus loved him. So he says, okay, you shall not murder. He's a rich young ruler, he hasn't killed anyone. You shall not commit adultery. Hmm, that might have been tough for him, but apparently he was good. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Excellent. And then he says, honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Hmm, not sure he was doing that last one. But anyway, he says to Jesus... Yep, I'm good. All these things have I kept from my youth. What still do I lack? Jesus says, you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What happens? He's rich, he's young, he's powerful, he's sad. When he heard this, he went away sad because he had great possessions. It was too much for him. Now, there's a lot in that, but I want to show you some more. Jesus says to his disciples, I assuredly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what do the disciples say to this? This is important. Okay, Jesus says, it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's just as hard as a camel going through the eye of a needle to get into the kingdom of God. Now, if you are a disciple and you're poor or you don't have money, or you're not rich, that's all good. How do you respond to that when that happens? You say, that's fine, Jesus, I'm okay. I can get into the kingdom of heaven, I'm not rich. Did they say that? No, they didn't say that. What did they say? Here's what they said. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Do you know what that means? It means the disciples believed themselves to be rich. Whether they were rich or not, and rich is always a relative term. I've met rich people who leave rich people in the dark, so far as rich people are concerned. There's rich, and then there's rich, and then there's filthy, filthy rich. And I've met at two or three of those levels. I've never met the top level, I don't think, but I've met some of them. You know, I've got, had a guy invite me to the first class lounge on a trip we did overseas recently. I'm looking around thinking, these people are rich. These people are rich. You know, it's like heaven there. It was really like heaven. Anything you want at your beck and call. It's like having Chris around all your life. It was fantastic. But then I was talking to one of the guys. He said, oh, yeah, this is good. He said, but I prefer when they give me my first class lounge room. There are people who get their own room in first class. Wow, there's another level of rich. And there's always another level of rich. But the disciples perceived them themselves as being rich. And that's important because the disciples went on a bit of a journey. Go with me to Acts chapter 3 and verse 6. Peter was there saying, okay, well, how do we get saved? But by the time he gets to Acts, something has changed in Peter. Because you see, Peter goes past this gate and there's a beggar there. We know this story. There's a good song about it. Walking and leaping and praising God, you know, from any of you went to 
Okay, you probably didn't, but I remember it well. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. It's a really great song. I'll teach it to you. No, I won't. Okay, so the guy says, got, have you got money for me? He looks at them expectantly, and what does Peter say? Nah, silver and gold, not me. You're looking at the wrong guy. Somewhere between Matthew and Acts, the perception has changed. And Peter no longer perceives of himself as having anything. And that's a very important change for every believer. Was it true that Peter had no silver and gold? Go with me again. Acts chapter 2, 44 to 47 says this. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's good. Sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one in court in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favour, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Peter could easily have said to the lame man, give me a minute, I'll go and get you some cash. He had access to resources because everybody in the church had pooled their resources, sold everything, stored up cash, and this is straight after that's happened. He's walking out in the street and he says, I haven't got any silver and gold because it's true. Peter's perception has changed. It's shifted from how can anyone get into heaven? We're all rich to I don't have anything. Hey, but I do have Jesus. I do have something I can give you. I do have a hand that I can reach out to you. I've got something that I can use to lift you out of the gutter. Amazing. Okay, how does all of this happen? Acts chapter 20 and verse 35 is a really interesting scripture if you're a Bible student. Acts chapter 20, 35 says, And remember the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's in red in your Bible normally, because it's the words of Jesus. Who knows where in the gospel Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive? Anyone want to take a shot at it? It's not there. Shh. It's not there. You won't read it in the gospels anywhere. And yet Jesus said it. Now, that doesn't trouble me, because at the end of John, John writes, you know, if we wrote down everything Jesus said, we would have too many books to fill. There's too much to write down. So, the Gospels are actually the edited highlights of Jesus' life. So, they didn't write down this bit where he says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I'll tell you the scripture that I think comes closest, and it's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, and it says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why is that like a give-receive scripture? Because a lot of people talk about that particular beatitude and they say that's about humility. You've got to be humble and you're blessed if you're humble. And I say, frankly, I don't read it that way. I don't agree with that reading. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's not blessed are the poor because who knows that being poor is not blessed. I know it. I've been poor. It's not blessed. It's cursed. Blessed are the poor in spirit because if you realise that what you have does not determine your wealth, you're very blessed. If you realise what you have does not dictate to you whether you're rich or poor, 
mission accomplished. Welcome to the world of being a Christian. Welcome to the world of following Jesus. Blessed are those who don't perceive themselves as having anything. By the time Peter got to Acts, he didn't consider himself as having anything. None of it belonged to him, whether he had it or not. Paul says this later on, he says in Acts, he says, I am content no matter what my circumstance, whether I'm rich or poor, hungry or full, abasing or abounding, I'm happy. Because what I have does not determine my attitude to whether I'm rich or not. You got the richest gift in the history of history itself. You got Jesus Christ. If you got him on the inside, you're the richest person on the planet. And if you don't have him on the inside, I'm going to give you the opportunity to have him on the inside and to become the richest person on the planet before you walk out of this meeting today. Because our wealth never, ever depends on what we have. It depends on our attitude to God, to Jesus. It depends on our perception of ourselves. And that way, when we're rich, we'll be good. And you can be rich. No problem with that. When you're not so rich, you'll be good. Because your circumstances don't dictate whether you're rich or not. You're rich in Christ. Very, very important for Christians to get this. And it took the disciples a long time to get this. Okay, when we get this, what are we doing this stuff for? A lot of the time in the Bible, you read about people who were little linchpins in a, in a major revival of kinds. You read about Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He's that short guy who couldn't get to Jesus because he was too short. And he was also a tax collector. He was filthy rich. He was amongst those guys who had the first class room. And he wanted to see Jesus. So in order to see Jesus, he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Got up into a tree. And eventually he saw Jesus. And Jesus, when he came past the tree, looked up and said, Zacchaeus, I'm having lunch at your place. Essentially, this is the Paul Mackin paraphrased version, but that's what he said. He said, let's go to your place for lunch. And he goes and has lunch at Zacchaeus' place, and just by being in the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus says, you know what, God? I'm going to give all this stuff back. I'm going to return threefold what I've stolen off people. And Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. Salvation's come to this house. How did all that happen? It happened because there was a sycamore tree there. Somebody planted a sycamore tree that enabled Zacchaeus to meet with Jesus. The Samarian woman, when she met Jesus, says Jesus went to the well and sat down. She met with him. They had the conversation. You know what happened. She says, wow, you must be God because you know all about me. And she goes and tells the men. They all come out from Samaria. They have this massive big revival in Samaria saying, hey, God's visited Samaria of all places because he's not supposed to visit that place. And they have a, a big revival. How did they have that revival? It's because somebody dug a well. Not only somebody, it was Jacob's well. You go right back to Genesis. Thousands of years before this happened, Jacob bought a piece of land and dug a well. And thousands of years later, Jesus sits down beside the well that Jacob dug and meets a woman and has a revival. In Acts, you see this story of Philip. Philip hears from God. And God says, go out on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert. And so he obeys the voice of God and he goes out on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he's going along the road and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, a prince. 
And the Ethiopian eunuch, for some reason, is in his chariot thing, and he's reading from Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, no, how can I understand? Nobody explains it to me. He says, good point. I can explain it to you. And Philip explains to the Ethiopian eunuch about what Isaiah means and about how it was a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ. And he gets saved and he gets water baptised and we have a revival in Ethiopia. Why did we have a revival in Ethiopia? Because somebody built a road. What are we doing in Vision Builders? What are we doing saying to people, we want to partner with you to expand the kingdom of God? I tell you what we're doing. We're planting a tree. We're digging a well. We're building a road. We are finding a way. We're finding a way. Because when you look at the multitudes, you must feel compassion for them. But compassion without resources is legless. We are building a way for people to come to Jesus. And you and I, when we say to you, we want you to be a vision builder with us, you and I are partnering in that process. You and I are getting together and saying, you know what, we can, we can plant that tree, we can dig that well, we can build that road, we can make a way for somebody to encounter Christ. Amen? That's what we're aiming to do. You know, giving um, is entirely, entirely about love. That's really what it is. And you know yourself when you want to give somebody a gift. I find, here's a bit of a confession from a lawyer, if I really love them, you know, I'm going to think about that gift, I'm going to try and find something special, something that really they need or they want or I know will bless them. And if they're just like, got to get someone a gift because I apparently know them, they've invited me to something which I don't want to go to, it's not quite the same love goes into that gift, you know. But real giving, true giving, is about love. And true giving is about taking your life and giving it. Jesus said, greater love has no man than that he should lay down his life for a friend. That's what true giving is about. And God is the ultimate example of true giving. We all know that scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave. The outworking of love is to give. And it's far more blessed to give than receive, but there's one point at which we really do need to receive. We do need to receive the first and greatest gift ever given. And that's the gift that God gave through His Son, Jesus, by saying, here He is, I'm giving you my only Son as a gift because I love you. And in order to experience the love of Christ in that gift, you need to receive it. You need to actually put aside the blessing of giving for one minute and take the blessing of receiving the Son of God into your life. 